Many people think if you help a child too much, they won't be learning. The opposite is the case. Hello, and welcome to the Arts of Language podcast with Andrew Poudois, founder of the Institute for Excellence in Writing, or as many like to say, IEW. My name is Julie Walker, and I'm honored to serve Andrew and IEW as the Chief Marketing Officer. Our goal is to equip teachers and teaching parents with methods and materials which will aid them in training their students to become confident and competent communicators and thinkers. So Andrew, as you well know, but perhaps our listeners aren't aware, we did a special needs conference for parents, teachers, tutors of children in um, who struggle on very on a variety of levels. And you did a couple talks, and you did a class with some kids, which was great. And we actually had some of the students that were live watching you do the work with you, of course. Sure. And some of those students have submitted their, the fox and the grapes. Oh, fun. Uh, little paragraph that they had written, which was really great. And we actually did a blog post on that to post some of their articles, which was really great. But then at the very end, we had not enough time because there's never enough time to answer all the questions that were submitted. But we had kind of an ask Andrew anything question back and forth. So this, I guess, is overflow from that. Definitely and, overflow. And people certainly can still watch that. The, mm-hmm. the event is finished, mm-hmm. but the video is on our YouTube, YouTube page, mm-hmm. so TV. Yes, exactly. YouTube channel. And uh, it's all like nonstop, five-some hours, mm-hmm. but in the middle is that student class. And so if you search a little bit, uh, you could find that. And yeah, some very interesting things happened during that student class. Right. And what what I love about how we at IEW teach writing and, of course, how you teach teachers how to teach writing is those demonstration classes. And so, yes, we wanted the kids to get something out of it. But I think more importantly, it demonstrated how our methodology works for these kids. So it was it was great. So let's just jump right in if you're ready. I'm ready. And of course, he hasn't seen these questions. Oh, I did want to mention one more thing. Yes. These questions may have already been answered, not in our live Ask Andrew Anything question that we did for that conference day, but they might have been answered by our customer service team because we have a lot of great customer service agents, as well as some of those are specialized in answering some of these questions. So all that to say is if you, listener, are hearing the answer to your question, great. If you still have a question, please just email our team info at IEW.com and someone will answer your question and hopefully we can help you help your student learn to write. Part of our, I wouldn't say our mission, but our mode of operating, no question left unanswered. No question left unanswered. Even sometimes ridiculous questions like the airspeed velocity of a swallow. We have never answered that question. We haven't. I know, but I actually know the answer now. Maybe you can do an Ask Julie anything and I can tell you. All right. First question. 
more seriously now is from Stephanie. She says, do you have any suggestions for when a student looks at the keyword outline but doesn't know how to fill in the other words to make a sentence? That's a very good question. And I I kind of addressed this very briefly during the TWSS Unit 1 where we begin talking about you know, what to do with this keyword outline now that you've chosen and copied keywords. Let me just say, teaching, writing, structure, and style, that's the TWSS. That's our teacher training course, the main, the most important thing that we sell here at IEW. Yeah. So the, the process, of course, is to test the outline by making sentences out of the keywords. Now, if a child cannot do that, there are a few things to, to look at first. The first question would be, was the source text appropriate? Was it at or below the reading level of the child? Because, you know, certainly if I tried to make a keyword outline from a highly technical document with things I would not know what they mean, I would look at the keywords and think, I still don't know what that means. Uh, so uh, we have to be sure that it's in the right comprehension comfort zone. So at or preferably below. The second thing could be, uh, in my experience, either a second language issue or an actual speech disability of some sort. And so here there isn't uh, that kind of natural way of just speaking in complete sentences. So if that's the case, then uh, you have to prompt a lot more. So usually the first sentence of a keyword outline contains the title or one or more elements of the title, especially if it's something like an Aesop fable or encyclopedic style of article. You know, if it has kind of a interesting title, perhaps that doesn't. But you look at, say, the dog in his reflection, you know, you've got a dog carrying a bone to enjoy it at home. So you don't need dog because it's in the title. So you may have to prompt that, though, because the child looks at bone carrying home you may have to, you have to say, so who had the bone? Or what I will do, and you've seen me do this, I will point to the word, and then I'll point to the next word, and then if there's no word in the outline, I might kind of gesture to the air or pull it out. And if they're too blank, I'll just say something. You know, I'll just dictate. I mean, you would go all the way to the point of, okay, I'll dictate a sentence. Now you repeat it back. Dictate repeat back, dictate, repeat back. And in my experience, it doesn't take too many times of that dictate, repeat back until the student kind of, you know, gets the hang of it and starts to speak in the more complete sentences. Mm -hmm. You know, the last thing that could happen is our expectation of of doing this independently is just too high at the beginning. And so... If you can model this kind of in a small group, that's helpful because then you've got a couple kids who can do it pretty easily and fluently being the example. Then the student who might not do that on the first sentence might have kind of got the hang of it by the fourth or fifth sentence. Mm -hmm. So, you know, kind of a, a, a range from the the reading and understanding level to just giving as much help as needed. Mm -hmm. That, you know, going back to that, you can't help too much. 
even if you are just modeling it, you know, even if you did say these three words, now say these three words. Yeah, and I, I, I love that about your philosophy of education. I love that about how you always bring in that you can't help too much. And, of course, we'll put a link in our show notes to your talk, The Four Deadly Errors of Teaching Writing, and one of them is withholding help. And I think especially with this group, it's so important yeah. that these parents and teachers know there's no penalty for helping out these kids because these kids might need more help. Yeah, and, you know, the, the bottom line kind of aphorism from that talk is that many people think if you help a child too much, they won't be learning the opposite is the case. If you don't help them enough, that's when the learning is much harder and possible. So, yeah, it's a good talk. So, anyway, I hope that helps Stephanie and she feels comfortable. Just dictate it for a while and see yeah. what happens. Yeah, good. Thank you. So, Sarah asks, how do I find age-appropriate reading and writing material for a dyslexic child who has learned to read much later and is now just learning to write? Most of the learning to write material I find is geared toward a much younger audience, and my son is not interested in it. There's so many kids who are not necessarily developmentally, neurologically ready mm-hmm. to read, and they get a little older. Of course, you know, my son Chris didn't read hardly anything until he was almost 12 years old, mm-hmm. didn't write anything until he was almost 12 years mm-hmm. old. And we we look at that as a problem. We look at it as behindness, I, you know, if you want to use the word, we look at it as a impediment to learning. And we've done many podcasts mm-hmm. on, you know, the, the hidden benefits of that dyslexic yeah. tendency or flat out being dyslexic. In my experience, the first thing you would always do in looking at a dyslexic child in a source text is check your font size. Oftentimes when we get materials that are written, you know, at a first, second grade reading level, it's nice and big. It's, you know, 24, 18, you know, at least 18 point. And, and then right around third grade reading level, bam, they shrink everything to Times Roman 14 or 12. Whereas the dyslexic kids do really well with the larger font and the more space. We know that. That helps a lot. But the content then is still, you know, C-spot run, and it's stupid. So the first thing (laughs) I would always do is enlarge a source text so that just the print is bigger. And if you can format it yourself, Mm -hmm. be sure you, you know, go space and a half. And Mm -hmm. the, the white space around words can be very helpful. The second thing is, you know, dyslexic kids rely a lot on hearing and then they can check their visual input against what they remember having heard. And you will note that whenever I have used a source text in any class ever, with almost no exception, and that would be after many, many months, certainly in the beginning, I always read the source text out loud, and I just ask everyone to follow along and listen. And then we go back and start making the, the keyword outlines. Well, and you have that intermediate step of were there any words in this source text that you need help defining? Yep. Sometimes I'll do that. As we're reading, right. I will stop 
define a word. Mm-hmm. I always encourage them, if you don't know what a word is, ask me if you don't want to interrupt, circle the word. Mm-hmm. So that knowing what every word means is important to me because that shows, okay, we are in the right zone here of mm-hmm. at or below reading level. Right. If there's too many words, too many people don't know, I may have blown it with that source mm-hmm. text. Mm-hmm. Uh, with a class, it's hard to back up, especially since I tend to make videos. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, but at home, or if you're working with a small group, you can just say, hey, this didn't work. Let's try something else. So um, we're doing a master class on how to write source text. We are. That's coming uh, up. That's this, for our premium members. This year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you know, if you're interested, anyone out there who's interested in kind of the whole mind, mm-hmm. the, the whole approach, the whole kind of planning approach that I have to source text that would be, I think, an interesting discussion for them. So make it bigger. Uh, it needs to be you know, understood, so don't hesitate to give all the auditory information. Then as they're looking again at the keywords, they hear that word, they see that, and they're like, oh, that's got to be that. They might not have been able to necessarily figure it out quickly, mm-hmm. but with the auditory rehearsal, mm-hmm. so to speak, the reading under the uh, more stressful condition is likely to connect up and be easier. You know, the third thing would be interest level. You know, people, whether it's a kind of a classic dyslexia or any other type of thing that interferes with reading and writing attentiveness, mm-hmm. kids have to exercise their willpower over their neurology to some degree to accomplish the things that are harder. What motivates them to exercise their willpower Well, there are different factors. A desire to please. Some kids, you know, that's strong. I want to make mommy happy. Other kids, they couldn't quite care as much. For some children, interest level Mm -hmm. is critical. Therefore, finding source text material that, that is at least somewhat interesting, if not actually fascinating, will help Mm. as opposed to something you know, that the kid looks at and just like, seriously. Mm-hmm. I, I'll give you a perfect example. In our theme-based writing lesson book on Narnia. Okay, right. Right. We have this whole thing on flowers. Mm-hmm. And I was putting myself in in the mind and body of an easily distracted, doesn't enjoy reading, typical kind of boy of 11 or 12 years old. And I read those source texts. I thought, this this is like castor oil, you know. You'd only do it if you were totally convinced it was good for you. And you're not going to convince them of this. And so I thought, what we need is something like that that I could offer them instead, right? Whatever, peonies. I can't remember the flower. So anyway, I got some poisonous and carnivorous plants. (laughs) Okay, well, immediately now... We're talking something that touches the imagination more easily. And I just found that true and you know, again and again and again, that if you can touch the imagination and you know your kids better than anyone, and then there are kind of typical things that are attractive to boys and things that are attractive to girls and things that are attractive to kind of different subsets of mm-hmm. people, older, mm-hmm. younger, blah, blah, blah. And so that can make a huge difference. 
because if it's like, whoa, this might be interesting, then the child will exercise willpower over neurology and make eyes, ears, and brain work better, at least for you know, a limited period of time. Mm-hmm. The last thing in this regard I think is very important for everyone is be careful about taxing the attention span beyond a breaking point. Absolutely. And I, I worry sometimes because, you know, when I teach classes because of the logistics, mm-hmm. you know, I'm there for one day or it's once a week or whatever. I'm trying to do as much as I can in the time that's available. And I end up running a class, you know, an hour and a half, two hours, which you can get away with very occasionally. But it would be hard to to do that in a different environment, especially in a home or a daily classroom. Or mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So uh, remembering to try and quit before the student is exhausted. Yep. And then what you get is an aftertaste of, oh, that wasn't so bad, or, oh, that was kind of fun. But if you push it to a point where the student is just tired and done, and then you quit, the after effect is, I hope I never have to do that again. So for motivational value, you know, try to be sensitive to where's that peak of attentiveness, and don't try to push it further. Mm-hmm. Try to mm-hmm. get quit any moment before the peak, and you're better off. And then you, know, you break things into smaller mm-hmm. chunks, and that works better for most kids, especially those who get neurologically get tired quickly. Yep, exactly. Good. Well, I hope that helps Sarah and everyone else. Tracy would like for your suggestions on integrating dyslexia strategies to help keep middle school students on track with what society deems normal normal. She's got normal in quotes. Well, I'm going to interpret normal in this case as testing at grade level. Okay, great. Without diagnosis. Okay. So if you have a child, Mm -hmm. I mean, even in most public school districts, and you test them and they test dyslexic and or dysgraphic, Mm -hmm. then the system which includes, you know, the school, the teachers, mm-hmm. the curriculum options, the district policies, et cetera, should allow for that child to have some resources and advantages that might not be something everyone else would want or need. Mm-hmm. The first thing that comes to mind would be audiobooks. Um, now, you're more likely to find that type of thing in upper grade levels than lower grade levels because there is a certain awareness, I think, among elementary or, you know, among primary teachers that, yeah, some kids read at five, some kids read at seven. That's just mm-hmm. that's just the way it is. The stress comes when you've got a child who's nine or ten and still not reading uh, or reading far below grade level in which case the school tries to rally the resources or the parents, Mm -hmm. um, if they weren't already involved, start to get involved, read books on dyslexia, listen to podcasts. And we have a huge assortment Mm -hmm. of great interviews with the IDs, Mm -hmm. with uh, Susan Barton, Mm -hmm. with my son Chris. So, you know, I don't know, probably at least half a dozen, if not more, podcasts dedicated to that question of dyslexia. And in, in a... You know, in a middle school, 
you do have this expectation that students in seventh, eighth, ninth grade would be able to read, you know, this sort of book and pass these sort of standardized tests, or else, yeah, they're behind. But if if you're willing to go out and say, well, some people read with their eyes, other people read with their fingers because they're blind. So why can't some people read with their ears?、Mm-hmm. Can't we provide all of this in an auditory fashion, and then that student would probably test just as well as anyone else? But it's more difficult, logistically challenging, time-consuming, consuming, maybe even more expensive to do that.、Uh, so we're we're kind of. And I think our friend here, Tracy, is kind of doing this catch up and move ahead at the same time.、Mm-hmm. It's like I'm going to do whatever I can to give these kids a visual advantage, but I want to keep them so they're intellectually engaged with what everybody else is doing.、Mm-hmm. And that's a very tough spot to be in, unless you can get the support of family and and/or technology, and and not attach a stigma. To those kids, like, oh, you're so stupid. You have to listen to an audio.、Mm-hmm. You know, how how are we able to, you know, help balance out that situation? Right. That's a tough one, and、yeah. it it gets harder and harder as you further age segregate kids.、Mm-hmm. So、mm-hmm. if you had, you know, kind of a big one room classroom, and you had twenty kids, and they were all in sixth, seventh, or eighth grade. You wouldn't notice the grade level distinctions、mm-hmm. the way you would if you had a uh oh here's a a whole class of sixth graders now we have to compare them with a whole class of other ninth graders、mm-hmm. so no easy answer to that one Tracy but if you figure out some good strategies let us know and we'll <laughs> do another podcast and pass it on yep sounds great so Eileen has a question my dyslexic son loves to create stories. But orally, because spelling is so difficult, I don't know how to keep encouraging writing when it's so painful. Well, the first thing, of course, is separate complexity.、Mm-hmm. Separate these activities.、Um, if he loves to dictate stories, that's a tremendous thing you want to kind of go with. Now we don't know how old this child is.、Mm-hmm. You know, I can imagine my grandson Aiden at seven. Yes, he could dictate a ten-page book to you, <laughs>、um, but he wouldn't copy his name unless absolutely forced to. That would be kind of normal for a lot of boys at seven. Now you look at that and say, "Oh, but you know, gosh, his five-year-old sister can write her whole name and tries to copy everything." Don't compare.、Mm-hmm. Don't compare. They're all different. But you want to cultivate that imagination. Mm-hmm. That fluency with words, that verbal aptitude,、mm-hmm. but don't try to make him write down what he's saying. So, you know, let him dictate stories to you. Get him a recording device and、mm-hmm. let him narrate into a recording device, and then maybe you can type that up for him. And he wrote it. He wrote it as he wrote it as much as Milton wrote Paradise Lost, even though he was almost blind. So he dictated it <laughs> to his daughters. Oh, nice. But nobody would dispute the fact. No one would say Henty didn't write Henty novels because he dictated to a secretary,、mm. right?、Mm-hmm. So, so he's still writing. It's just verbal writing, right? And you want to cultivate. But at the same time, you want to motivate him to build the stamina 
of putting words on paper. Now, this is where, you know, if we knew the age and experience of the child, it would be a little more helpful. But, you know, I would argue very strongly that just straight copy work is very, very valuable, you know, from the age of as early as you can do it, actually, which for a lot of people would be, you know, six, Mm -hmm. seven years old. Mm -hmm. For some kids, maybe not even eight, maybe not nine. But then for, for more than a short time maybe a couple years, Mm. you know, a year, year and a half, wherever you start. And what happens is at first it's really slow and it's miserable and you hate it and you're tired after writing 20 words and there's, you know, potential for arguing and complaining. But if you can get a system to keep going, then what happens like anything? Well, exercise, music, right? Mm -hmm. It gradually gets easier. Mm -hmm. And over the weeks and the months and maybe up to a year, or my son did about 16 months of Mm -hmm. every day around 15, 20 minutes copy work. Mm -hmm. At a certain point, you're like, okay, this isn't so hard. Mm -hmm. I can do this Mm -hmm. now. And then you see you, you will reach a point eventually, and you can't force it, but you reach a point where that confidence and competence of putting words on paper developed through copywork reaches together and meets that fluency of ideas. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, you know, use our writing program, learn about keyword outlines, and continue the separation of complexity. First, what to write, then writing, then attending in more detail how you have done it uh, is going to bring that together, I think, even faster. Well, our timekeeper has told us that we are out of time. I can't Andrew. believe it. That, I know. That was like only four, four or five questions. Right. And, and I have many more. So I think what I'd like to do is something that we've never done before, but do another Ask Andrew Anything and just make this a two-part. Part two uh, with more special needs questions. Exactly right. Uh, we can do that. All right. Till then. All right. Thanks so much for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, you can subscribe to this podcast in iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher, or just visit us each week at IEW.com slash podcast. Until then, on behalf of Andrew Pudua and the team at IEW, I thank you for allowing us to partner with you on your journey toward better listening, speaking, reading, writing, and thinking. <laughs>